social media, it was kind of funny. We used to spend probably 10 grand a year in the old days on the phone books, yellow pages. Most of the kids mm -hmm. out listening to this probably don't know what that is even. And right. as social media and different things came around, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, you've got your website up here. You're going to save all that money. Now we're spending 10 grand a month on the, all the different uh, advertising sites. There's places like the Wedding Wire, the Knot. You really need to be on there to be in the area. You have to pay people to boost your website and make the postings and boost your postings so people get them. So there's no cost savings. But if you're really sharp and you know what you're doing, you can go on and have a very good social media presence without a lot of help from someone else, too. It just depends how savvy you are. You have to read up on things. And if you're a young person, you kind of grew up with it, then you're going to have a big advantage over somebody like me. Hello and welcome to At Your Service. I'm Tim Banks, the Dean of the Business and Computers Division here at Howard Community College. And today I have a special guest from right here in the community. It's Bobby Mitchell from Putting on the Ritz. Bobby. Hi, thanks for having me today. Putting on the Ritz has been in business. My mother actually started a little restaurant back in 1976, a little place called Ma's Kettle. I came in with her around 1983, and we started doing small catering jobs out of there. And about midnight, mid-80s or so, we started putting on the Ritz Catering. Today, we're a full-service caterer. We're usually in the top 10 in the Baltimore area. We have a couple of our own ballrooms, Ten Oaks Ballroom and the Great Room in Savage Mill, which are right here in Howard County. We also have work all over between Baltimore and Washington area. We do everything from weddings, bar bat mitzvahs. We do a lot of corporate events during the week, a lot of events for schools. Pretty much have food, we'll travel. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with Howard Community College and how it prepared you for your current business model? Well, honestly, my mom had a little restaurant. She started that when I was 16. I swore I was never going to go down there. I went into business school and I've got my um, degree in business. Basically, I always wanted to go in and I went to work for a company. I was doing sales. I did pretty good. They wanted to move me and put me up in Illinois. And I was kind of thinking that's where you put people in their back. Well, pardon anybody from Illinois out there, but I didn't really want to leave the area. So I told my mother, I'd, she had just lost her manager. I said, give you a hand for a while while I'm interviewing for other jobs. Apparently, I don't interview very well. 39 years later, I'm still here. So uh, I guess, you know, I got some good business background from that. I really didn't have culinary programs back in those days, I don't believe. And that really wasn't what I was going towards. But I got some good common sense classes and just got some good basics for business. Great. That's awesome. So tell me about the evolution of the business. You started with a small family restaurant doing some catering. How did you really prepare it to grow? Boy, I tell you, it was, <laughs> fly by the seat of your pants is exactly what it was. There are people that uh, run their businesses and people that have businesses that run them. I've been run by this place for the last 30 years. But basically, you know, we started doing, my mom always did little carry out like deli tray pickups and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we got there, I started doing a little more. And then I started getting involved in some community groups like the Qantas Club and the uh, Chamber of Commerce and they both used to do big bull roast back in those days. That was a big fundraiser thing back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I was joining the Chamber of Commerce. And they had a bull roast. And I was doing the Kiwanis. I told the Chamber of Commerce I'd probably be doing the Kiwanis bull roast. I told the Kiwanis I'd probably be doing the Chamber of Commerce bull roast. So I ended up getting both of them. So I had two 500-person events. Wow. All this outside cooking. And I don't think I'd ever cooked so much as a hot dog outside of my entire life. 
So <laughs> I went down to a friend of mine. He did a lot of pit beef. He showed me how to do it. Pretty much we pulled them both off and then worked it out of the restaurant. We kept that. People would be coming in the restaurant. I would uh, tell them we we're doing catering and just pretty much whatever they wanted to get done. I said, yeah, I can do that. We got it done. And it just kind of evolved. And we had a little building in the back of the place. And then we eventually uh, turned that into a small kitchen because we didn't have enough room in our kitchen. We got lucky in the beginning. We first started catering. It was back in the 80s when they had the big um, AT&T strike. And we had just done a picnic for a division of AT&T, uh, maybe C&P back in those days. I'm not sure which was which. but sure. And we ended up getting uh, one of these large buildings during the strike. We were feeding all the managers, like, 250 people a day. It was crazy. So I'd run in trucks. I didn't have a catering kitchen at that point. I went down. The local fire department had one. So I asked them if I could rent their kitchen. They said, yeah. And we just started doing food out of there. And one of our first big jobs was 250 people a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was crazy. Wow. What a way to build a business. So tell me about your cuisine profile. What do you guys specialize in? Is there anything that's super popular on your menu? You know, everybody talks about those garlic mashed potatoes. Drives me crazy. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll do a nice, beautiful wedding with, uh, you know, tenderloin and crab cakes. And they're talking about how wonderful these potatoes are. <laughs> Drives me nuts. But, you know, being a caterer, it's not quite like a restaurant. We really have to do a variety of things. Sure. I mean, we do serve meals. We do stations, buffets. Serve meals are a lot bigger now since COVID. We still do a ton of buffets and stations. Things are getting back to normal. But honestly, we do pretty much what the clients want. I mean, we have a lot of menus online with samplings, but, you know, Italian, Asian, I mean, pretty much whatever anybody wants, we try to do. We've got about four main chefs back in the kitchen and a lot of helpers and everybody's got their own little thing. And sometimes we even ask people for uh, recipes and things, you know, depends upon where your family's from. Cultures are very different. Mm -hmm. You know, one part of India is different than another part of India, but we'll do all kinds of dishes. Sure. Sounds good. So good segue. Tell me about your process of managing through the pandemic and how business has returned. I'll tell you that I have been, I'll be 40 years uh, January at this business. And I'll tell you, nothing was ever like that pandemic. I mean, I was at a catering convention in Las Vegas the week before. Mm -hmm. And literally that's when things started closing down. And like there's 5,000 caterers there and event planners and everybody's walking around looking at their phone like this. And just things were canceling. No one knew what was going on. Vegas was closing down. There was a big construction thing there. They closed down. So I got back and by the time I got back that Monday, the governor had shut down the state after that. Oh, I think they had all the people out at the bars for St. Patty's Day Sunday, and he wanted mm -hmm. to close it down before the actual day on Tuesday. And I didn't know what to do at first. We kept people here for a few weeks trying to figure out what to do, and it was getting to be apparent things weren't going to open up anytime soon. You know, I came back from my place, and I was like, told my bookkeeper, I was like, well, I think it's going to be going on for a good month or so. And she goes, I think it's going to be a lot longer than that. I'm like, and she's always Miss Debbie Downer, but, <laughs> you know, she was right. I was wrong. And it was crazy. So we shut down. You know, we had to lay the employees off, which I've never done in 40 years. And luckily, the, you know, the payroll things came out for the employees. PPP came along. You know, it came out, I, I didn't get in time, the first batch of it that came out. And I just, you know, I was going nuts. We always leave a ton of money in our checking account for emergencies. And thank sure. God we had it there, but we were going through it quick. You know, we still had to pay rents. Some of the landlords worked out deals with us where we only had to pay half rents. But still, you know, you're paying five grand here and six grand there instead of 10 or 12. Right. Still a lot of money when nothing's coming in. 
And sure. luckily, by getting the PPPs late, I kept watching all the things. I, I got on Twitter. I was watching everything from Congress and seeing how they were going to allow you to go longer with the PPP instead of the initial two months. And, um, you know, it's been more towards rents and less towards the uh, payroll. Because really, honestly, if you don't have a place when you come back, there's nowhere for the payroll to be. Right. And um, that kind of worked out really well for us, not getting in that first batch. And we kind of by their time, we did some jobs for the counties. They were feeding some underprivileged people. We did that for, you know, Howard and PG counties and some small corporate things for offices that were still going on. But it was a slow process. I mean, slow we went process. from $6 million a year to $1 million and that probably 700000 or 800000 was that was before the shutdown. So it, it was horrific. It really was. The main thing was you just didn't know what the end date was. I mean, right. if somebody said, hey, we're going to close down until next November, you start formulating a plan, figuring out what you got to do. But there was no end date. You know, we had a ton of stuff still booked for October. The fall was looking great. Mm-hmm. And it just kept going. And those jobs kept dropping off as COVID kept growing and growing. And it was horrendous. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. It was the same for us here. So... We've got students that are taking catering classes and food and beverage classes, of course, through the program. What would be some tips that you could instill upon students as best practices in understanding catering and how it works? You know, every day is different. If you're with somebody that wants a set schedule and you want to come in and do your nine to five, you're in the wrong business. I mean, one day we've got ovens that are on back of trucks. You know, some of our venues that we run, like the Ten Oaks Ballroom and the Great Room, they've got beautiful kitchens there. So we have a main commissary on Whiskey Bottom Road, and we have our staff. They're prepping things there. Then we put it on the refrigerator truck, and we send it out. And we sometimes we finish it up on site in the uh, kitchens. Other times we actually have large propane-powered convection ovens, and we cook off the back of the truck. You know, sometimes you might be in an office building in D.C. where you can't leave your truck there. We have these metal cabinets and you do a lot of sterno, which I don't think they teach that in uh, (laughs) any of those catering classes. You really should because it comes in very handy. But, you know, it's a process. There's actually a book on it now called Hot Box Cookie. It came out last year, but I met the authors from it about three years ago. But um, it's it's very, you got to think on your feet. You always have to be ready for last minute changes and surprises. Right. So it's really about flexibility, too. They definitely have to be flexible and prepared for change on a dime. You never know what's going to happen, whether it's inclement weather or, you know, you get a flat tire on your way to the event. You got to be ready to hustle. <laughs> yeah, you got to be ready, right? I always tell them, like, you can't anticipate it. If it happens, you just have to be prepared for it. So great advice. How important would you say it is to stay connected to community? Oh, it's great. I mean, for years, I belonged to a local Kiwanis club. I've given that up over the years. Actually, the Kiwanis club kind of went away. But I've been in the Chamber of Commerce throughout. So, I mean, we do donations to different local charities. We just did something for the first tea group. It's for young golfers. So you see, so you see, make a lot of connections that way. And I was born and raised in Howard County. I'm one of the few. Most people from around here nowadays are from somewhere else. From somewhere so else. I, I was actually born and raised here. So I have a lot of local connections. And we we'll always try to help out the local schools. You can't always donate everything, but we always try to give good deals to local charities. It keeps us in front of everybody. Sure. Great to have those good community ties, especially when they recognize you at a young age. They're going to look back to you as they get older and start to have events of their own. 
as a premier caterer. So anytime you can attach yourself to the community, it's always a win-win for both sides. The community yes. benefits and you benefit as well. So great. So next question is, how much time do you think it takes for a startup to really grow into a full-fledged catering service? You know, it depends on what kind of startup. I mean, if you already have a restaurant, then you've got a head start on everybody, which is kind of nice. I mean, if you're just opening up a kitchen somewhere, you know, you first you have to find yourself a nice, you know, commercial kitchen. People want to start catering out of their houses, which is illegal. So you need to right. find a commercial kitchen, get licensed and insured. And, you know, a lot of it just depends on luck. I mean, if you have some good connections and you start working and you start making contacts, you can get in right away. We started ours with smaller little lunch drop-offs. We did corporate catering. That was actually probably the biggest part of my business for years. We would have sometimes 15 lunches going out of here. And then mm -hmm. when I was dropping off the lunch, I'd always let the person know, if you have a big open house or a big Christmas party or picnic, whatever, we can do all those things too. And we right. kind of self-promoted. But I mean, you could take off and get lucky and do something in six months, or it could take you two years, or it could never happen. I mean, it's a very high failure business too. It's, it's, it's a very hard business, the restaurant food business in general. Yeah, it's tough. So your sales experience definitely tied in to having those people skills to ask and kind of mind for more business in a way that was comfortable. So you weren't hard selling, you were just inquiring about potential business opportunities coming out of these lunch drop-offs. So, which could have led to a Christmas party or to a bigger event. So having those people skills is very important in catering as well because you got to be able to talk to folks and get to know them through the process. So oh, for sure. So next question, I hear a lot of young chefs wanting to do personal chefing and catering. Is that a strong competitor out there for you? Do you get a lot of competition from personal chefs or, or small caterers trying to make a name for themselves? Well, I mean, as far as personal chefs go, again, if they're working out of a licensed operation, then they mm -hmm. can cater anywhere. Like most places nowadays, they want to see your license insurance before you can get on a list. You know, a lot of them will do private home parties. We tend not to do as many of those as we used to. It just gets to be expensive now. Like the bigger you grow, the higher your minimums are. You have overhead with the warehouse and kitchen staff. When you're a guy by yourself, you can do everything a lot cheaper. Of course, if you get sick, then who's going to do it? So it's all about your comfort levels with people. Sure. We run into those people. I mean, we run into them a bit, but not as much as we used to, just because we tend to do bigger events. A lot of the events we do are too big for someone who's a personal chef, and he might be his own employee without having a staff or without having a big enough kitchen to be able to compete with someone like me or to be able to put food out for 400 people. Sounds good. So... When we talk about catering and the catering industry, how big of a role does social media play in that? Huge, and I am so bad at it. I finally got in the hang of Facebook and it's gone now. Nobody wants to do it anymore. We're trying to, we've got, I've got a company. They're getting me on Twitter. Problem around here is we're all old. It's like most of my salespeople are older too. We've got some younger people coming in, so okay. they can help us with that. You know, we try to do some things on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I was interviewing a young salesperson that was quite, striking to me we were talking about social media and she herself was getting married she said she found all of her wedding vendors through tiktok which i was like 
well, I just saw TikTok was funny little videos. So right. there's a lot of advertising going on there. And really, I mean, social media, it was kind of funny. We used to spend probably 10 grand a year in the old days on the phone books, yellow pages. Most of the kids mm-hmm. out listening to this probably don't know what that is even. And right. as social media and different things came around, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, you've got your website up here. You're going to save all that money. Now we're spending 10 grand a month on the, all the different uh, advertising sites. There's places like the Wedding Wire, the Knot. You really need to be on there to be in the area. You have to pay people to boost your website and make the postings and boost your postings so people get them. So there's no cost savings. But if you're really sharp and you know what you're doing, you can go on and have a very good social media presence without a lot of help from someone else, too. It just depends how savvy you are. You have to read up on things. And if you're a young person, you kind of grew up with it, then you're going to have a big advantage over somebody like me. So for a, a young student ready to graduate and thinking about starting a catering business or getting their feet wet, what do you think the initial startup cost would be? Oh, my God. I mean, kick, well, it depends. If you can find, I think there's some places, not in Maryland so much. I know in Virginia and maybe up in Gaithersburg, I've heard of a couple. There are some cooperatives where you can run out kitchen space. I'm not sure what the cost of those places are. Like to have your own storefront, I mean, the kitchen space alone, you're probably talking a couple hundred grand to get started. Just, you know, putting right. in the kitchen today with the hood systems, the walk-in boxes, and you can get some things used at auctions, but boy, getting those out of the places, like that hood system I left above your head there probably cost a hundred grand. Yeah. And if you went to sell it tomorrow, you get about $50 for it. And the chances of finding someone who has that same amount of space to pull that down and put it in, never works out. So I mean, right. you have to, generally, most of my kitchen stuff I buy brand new. And it's just, it's a lot of cost. I mean, you really want anybody young that wants to get in the catering business. So the first thing you all do is go work for a caterer for a while. One, yeah. they could all use the help. But two, that's the best way to learn the business. You want to see what someone else does, what you need, what you don't need. And then you can start your own place, put your own slant on it. Sure. Especially learning all the many facets to the business. From the sales side to the kitchen side to the banquet serving side, the setup, the, the floor plans, all those things are so important to have a working knowledge of. So I, I, I totally think working with a catering company as a student or as a recent graduate would definitely be a benefit for eyes wide open as to what the industry really does. And it's a lot of hours involved. You know, I always tell them that the only job that compares to kitchens is car sales, right? Because you got to kind of be there all day to get enough fish in the bucket to make enough money. On the kitchen side, you got to be there all day to get all the work done and do all the many moving parts to it. So you're going to be on your feet eight to 10 hours, eight to 12 hours, 16 hours some days, just depends on what the business needs are. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it keeps changing. I mean, honestly, like when I first got started doing catering 25 years ago, it seemed to be that, you know, you'd have like maybe a four-hour party somewhere and then, you know, you get there a couple hours before, an hour afterwards. Nowadays, big halls, they run out and they're like, okay, eight grand for the day and you come in whenever you want. So now brides want parties that are six hours or seven hours. Mm-hmm. And if you get there two or three hours before to set up an hour, you got an 11-hour day, not counting your travel time. It's getting crazy. Right. Probably the hardest logistic thing we've had is the people wanting longer and longer weddings. And my God, it's such a waste of money. You know, by that seventh hour, you got 12 people sitting in the corner somewhere. You could have gone to the local bar and saved yourself 10 grand. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of nuts. 
better. I always tell my brides, better to leave saying, boy, I wish it was a little longer as opposed to thank God this thing's finally over. But it, you got to be ready for the long hours. You've got to have your people skills like we were talking about earlier, you know, knowing how to treat the customers and build up your business. You know, many great chefs going out of business just because they didn't have those people skills, how to handle customers. And you know, if that's not your forte, make sure you've got someone in the business that can do that. Sure. Okay, so this is the part, as we start to wrap up, I like to ask a few questions at the end, and you can reply with just one word answer, or if you want to go a little deeper, you can. Sure. Okay, so first question is, this is my favorite, what's your favorite ice cream? Ah, geez, I got a couple, but I would have to say mint chocolate chip. Love mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate chip, definitely yeah. on the list. You know, Harford County does this ice cream trail that I keep saying I'm going to go on, but I just know I won't make it after one or two stops. I'll be, I'll be wiped out. So mint chocolate chip it is. So next question is, where do you see the company in the next five years? My youngest son is starting to work with me now. I'm trying to transition a little bit, teach him the business. I've got two boys. I've got an older son. He's actually doesn't want to do the business anymore. He just says, basically, it's not his cup of tea. And I said, you know, Bo, some people don't enjoy working for a living. You have to do something. And he goes, if I don't, if I'm going to do something I don't enjoy, I'm going to have my weekends off. So, you know, right now we're transitioning. We're actually scaling down a little bit. We had one smaller hall we got rid of, but we're focusing on doing less jobs, charging a little more per job, but, you know, having the appropriate staffing. Staffing got hard after the um, COVID. People mm -hmm. didn't come back. They don't seem to have one as many part-time. We rely on a lot of part-timers on the weekend. So now we're focusing on doing a little less each day, but doing a little better job at it. Okay. Sounds good. Sometimes scaling back is not a bad thing. It can really refocus. You can improve quality of life for everyone by cutting back a little bit and, and just making more time and space for things to happen. So great. Next question, favorite dish or, or entree on the putting on the Ritz menu? Oh boy, I got a lot of those. I always try to watch my weights. I don't eat them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this one dish, it's uh, chicken bruschetta. It's really good. It's kind of like a bruschetta toast, but we use chicken as the base for an entree. Uh -huh. I love that, but I'm really crazy about our crab cakes also. So, oh, nice. I'm not sure if I have just the one, to be honest with you. I've gotten so spoiled on crab cakes. I can't eat, I can't go cross state lines and eat a crab cake. Every time I order a crab cake out of state, I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah, just don't do it. Drive me crazy. <laughs> just don't do it. Crab cakes are here and here only. It should be like wines and champagne. Certain area regions can't call something a crab cake. If you want to make it up in New England, you got to call it something else. Right, you got to call it something else, a crab uh, burger or something. Whatever you want to call it. Just yeah, don't whatever call it. you want to call it. <laughs> okay, well, this has been great. I've really enjoyed our time today. So if it's any comments or questions you have for me, this is a great time. Uh, no, I enjoyed everything. Love to come down and see the place one time. Looks spectacular back there. Uh, oh, yeah. If you to talk to your catering students, I'm always available. Let me know. We're very proud of our location here. We redid the curriculum. So we've got new curriculum in tandem with the new facility as well. So it, it's very welcoming for new students wanting to get in culinary and hospitality. We've done a fantastic job of building a sustainable program to service the area. As restaurants grow and come out of COVID and the pandemic and all that, they're all looking for great staff and we're hoping to support that as much as we can with qualified, well-trained students. 
So we're always open to inviting guests in to visit, come see the place, as well as guest speaking to give students the opportunity to hear from the industry professionals what it's really about. I think their judgment can be easily clouded by media or culinary fame. They'll be seeking culinary fame out the gate, but it's a lot of work that goes into building a lasting career in the food and beverage industry. It's not designed for the lighthearted. It is definitely passion. You got to have the passion to fuel you through it. It's just like football. Only so many kids go from high school football to pro. Only so many go to the Food Network. You know, most of us have to That's make a right. living here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think we're just about out of time. So again, thanks for joining us at, at your service here at Howard Community College. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.